1: Hey everyone, Matthew here. This is a special episode of Scaffold recorded earlier this month with Ellis Woodman and Rosie Gibbs-Stevenson, who along with Mattia Velaskalik are the people behind the Architecture Foundation. As you probably know, Scaffold is supported in part by the AF, but the reason I wanted to speak with Ellis and Rosie was to take stock of a project they embarked on back in April in response to the pandemic called the 100-Day Studio. For 100 days from April to August, the AF put on a mind-boggling series of nearly 300 lectures, interviews, building tours, and panel discussions, handing over the virtual stage to a diverse cast of practitioners from all over the world, from Alvaro Siza to Yasmin Larry, Kate McIntosh to Jack Self, all hosted virtually and free to view on YouTube. In my conversation with Ellis and Rosie, we touched on the breadth of discourse made possible by the 100 Day Studio's open format ranging from the decolonization of architecture to social justice in the built environment, and discussions about ornament and politics, and the tensions between architectural form and environmental performance. This is, of course, the season of roundups, and given Ellis and Rosie are very likely the only people to have watched every single 100-day studio event, I also wanted to know what their roundups were, which projects they most enjoyed or thought deserved more attention. The 100-day studio was a monumental feat, That has not only changed the trajectory of the AF's future program of events, it's also exposed the possibility of an architectural discourse that is alive and expansive and flourishes through its diversity. There is so much more in store this year from the AF. Visit architecturefoundation.org.uk, sign up for their newsletter, and while you're there, consider becoming a member or giving a donation if you can. It's through your support that projects like the Hundred Day Studio, as well as this podcast, are possible. Alright, let's get to the interview now. Wishing everyone a happy new year and may twenty twenty one be better than the last. Hi Ellis, hi Rosie, how are you?
2: Oh it's well. Apart from yeah, three days starting at half eight in the morning and finishing at seven at night of cribs.
1: Uh yeah. um, Thanks to both of you for taking time to do this this morning. I really appreciate it. Um, what I was hoping to have done is speaking to you both right after the 100-Day Studio had ended, as if you were two athletes who had just finished this <laughs> incredible game of endurance, and there would be this kind of breathless courtside discussion about what just happened. Um, and. Uh, then the 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 autumn and winter just engulfed i'm sure everyone and more and more work and that didn't happen but now's the chance um probably with the benefit of a little more hindsight to in a way just take stock of what happened this year uh and what is continuing to happen to architecture uh architecture criticism and the curation of architecture as well But I guess before we get into the 100-Day Studio and um, the trajectory of the AF's agenda moving forward, I wondered if we could just talk a bit about both of you. You know, you're two curators uh, from distinct generations. Ellis, you're kind of in the middle of your career, at the height of your powers. (laughs) Rosie, you are just setting out. Yeah. And I think it'd be interesting for listeners just to get a sense of... um, how you both encounter architecture. And maybe if we start with you, Rosie, you studied at the UAL um, and then did your bachelor's of architecture in Brighton from 2012 to 2015, and then went on to do your diploma at London Met, graduating in 2019. Um, Could you just help me understand, I guess, how you moved from studying architecture as a discipline or as a practice into, into this curatorial role?
3: I mean, I think it's really difficult because I think um, I'm kind of used to, like, I quite like being in the background of things and um, <laughs> and placing other people in the spotlight. And I find it really difficult to talk about myself. Mm. Um, I think me and Ellis have this conversation a lot. <laughs> um, but, yeah, I mean, I, I studied... Um, studied art as my foundation year um and then went on to to move into architecture and I think that I've always felt a little bit at the outside of architecture like it wasn't it was something that I was totally like interested in and involved in but it didn't feel like the right medium for me to be exploring ideas um and it was when I got to um London Met that I got like heavily involved in um setting up a an architecture society um which was about kind of creating um a culture of events and community that wasn't there at all um we just i was the first year um that london met moved to the new building after they were in um central central house that was called central house um and um there was it was just a complete like void of any architectural culture. Um, it was the building that the business and law students used to use. So um, there was really kind of nothing there. And we had to maybe that was we had to really start from scratch. Um, and um, I found that kind of uh setting up a kind of a program of events for people to find each other in um, was what I really took. Um, pleasure in I guess and um, really liked bringing people together um, so that was when I met um, Finn um, setting up a megacrit for uh, London Met and it also invited uh, UEL and in Kingston and we had Kate McIntosh there and um, and Akil Gave smith from Resolve and it was a really nice um, discussion like we had like four Crits going on at the same time, and um, that was all about um, exploring a kind of more collaborative relationship between the critics and the students, and how we could change that format a little bit. Um, mm. So yeah, I think, and then out of that, I um, yeah started at the AF straight out of um, London Met, and I think my position in curation has kind of just been evolving since then. In that, I'm just learning on the job and just. Um, Seeing how that develops.
1: And you mentioned Finn. This is Finn Harper, who was a former curator at the Architecture Foundation and now is a director at Open House. Yeah. It's exciting to hear you say that what drew you to um, the periphery of architecture is a way in which new interactions could be encouraged. And Mm -hmm. um, I just want to, I guess, bracket that point to revisit maybe further down the conversation. But, Mm -hmm. Ellis, can we move on to you? So you studied architecture at Cambridge from 1990 to 93 and then did your master's or diploma at the Met, London Met, from 95 to 97. And then you went on to, to do your part three at UCL, which I didn't realize actually in 1999. So obviously that kind of signals that you had intended to go into professional practice.
2: You know, I worked as an architect for, for seven years. Really? And I was working with uh, at panda Hudsmith, and um had a, a happy time and mm. uh, towards the end of that um, I'd started working independently with a colleague at Panda Hudsmith Hugh strange um, and he, so he and I had this baby practice called strange woodman mm-hmm. and um I eventually, yeah, I left the practice uh, with a, yeah. Initially, what facilitated leaving was was um, I became kind of three day a week critic at, um, at Building Design magazine, and in a way that you know people set up a practice and that they subsidise it with teaching. I was really subsidising it with writing, and um, and that, yeah, it became within a year or so. It became clear to me that. I was a better writer than I was an architect. And um, you know, I was I was I was enjoying the I guess I was about 30 at the time and I was enjoying the the impact one can have on the discourse in that position and, and you know I was looking, thinking, God, if I set up an independent practice on my own, you know, with, with you now in kind of 10, 15 years' time, what might I have achieved? And you you, you look at people around you and you think, oh, but well, there are better architects than me who are, you know, still doing house extensions and, you know, into their forties. And is that what I want to mm. um, do? And, and Hugh's gone off and, you know, he's a very much better architect than I, I was uh, and had, had a great deal of success independently. But um, that that was how it started. I'm really
1: interested in that moment where that decision was made. Was it a struggle for you? Was there a kind of um morning. How difficult was it for you to accept that you were a better writer than you were an architect?
2: Uh, I felt yeah, there was a certain amount of guilt for <laughs> it was just a very useful contribution to uh um uh, that, that I'm gonna be making and and um stepping away from the, the business of, of of building things. Mm-hmm. Uh it, didn't last hugely long. I mean, I said, I, but I, I started writing, I, I felt, um, I felt that the, the, there was, there were a lot of people, a lot of people who were writing about architecture in the UK, this was, I guess, in the early 2000s, hadn't necessarily had a background as a, in practice, they, had, they hadn't designed anything. And I did, I certainly felt that my background in practice informed what I wrote very directly because being a critic in a way, it it feels like an act of design. You have to, if you're going to do the job properly, you've got to imagine how things might've been otherwise. Mm. Um, you you look at a, you look at a project and you you sort of end up, you know, before you can offer a critique, you have to reimagine it in your head. So there's a, it it draws very specifically on, 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 on design skills. Mm. Um, so I felt that I was able to, You write in a different way from people who hadn't had a design background, and um, and then I'm kind of very conscious as as in a way, writing about architecture is very narrow in its focus, which is, you know, I I really want to replicate the kind of conversations one might have in an office about uh, um, about the direction of a of a design. Um, I'm not particularly a politicized writer or writing about the nature of the city or you know, planning. I really want to write about form and mm. um, about um, in, in a very kind of intense way.
1: So I guess further to that point, I, I do want to look under the hood now and understand, I guess, um, these positions in a little more detail. And I guess a way of doing that is by looking at um, choices you both made in the stories you chose to read for this 100 Day Studio project. So just to give listeners a bit of context, in addition to a series of talks that took place over the course of the first lockdown throughout the summer as well. I think there are almost 300 talks in total, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Um, part of the, the speaking series included um, a nightly bedtime story reading by a selected guest. And on a couple of occasions, um, the guests had to back out and um, LSU and Rosie had to stand in, and choose something to read. It was a twenty-minute slot. Uh, decision made in, in the last minute, but also I think very telling and very in line with what you and Rosie have been saying just now about your own attitudes and interests towards architecture. So maybe Ellis, if we keep with you, I know you chose some text by the architect James Gowan, and you spoke a bit about your relationship with Gowen. I guess at the beginning of your career as a writer and you framed him as an ideal reader and a teacher in a way. And it's interesting because James Gowan obviously worked with the other James Sterling for seven years of his career and arguably was overshadowed by Sterling, but also contributed really significantly to the kind of formal evolution of a certain kind of architecture and to that, and is totally in line with the interests you've just laid out about architectural form. Then, on the other hand, Rosie, you chose an excerpt from the book Descent of Man by um, Grayson Perry. And what you were interested in was discussing power inequalities, redefining the tropes of masculinity, and focusing on this idea, um, as Perry does, of the default man in our culture today. Um, and these two. These two poles, you know, they both operate on the same subject, which is architecture. They're two sides of the same coin in a way. I wondered if you could both just speak to those choices you made to help me and to help listeners understand your attitudes and where you're coming from. Maybe if we start uh, where I ended with Rosie and then go back to Ellis on that.
3: Yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I I chose that um, book because I think it really represented yeah, where it was coming from with, I think also like it represented the, the kind of spirit of the summer, um, this year, a kind of really a real opening up of discussions around, um, race and, um, gender equity, bringing in, um, narratives that have been underrepresented, um, in architecture and, um, really trying to explore them. Um, this is something that, yeah, I think lots of people have spoken about this, but, the, the two kind of factors of the pandemic and um, the murder of George Floyd um, happening all in the same summer and then um, exasperated by lockdown. And and I think the 100 Day Studio really, it was a real like space and opportunity and platform for um, lots and lots of diverging discussions. Um, and yeah, Grayson's, Grayson Perry's um, chapter, it just sums it up so well it's just so beautifully written and i had such a joy reading it when i was making the decision of what to read um i think it's it was really important to reflect on um who had written what i wanted to read and um i didn't want to read um, a piece by a black woman when that isn't my experience and that's not my lived experience and I was really conscious of that. Um, I know also I'm not, I, Grace and Perry is not my experience um, either, but it just felt like something I could relate more strongly <laughs> with. Um, and I didn't want to speak for, um, for black women in this context. So yeah, um, it was a joy to read.
1: Mm. Okay. So Ellis, can we talk more about your choice? Cause I think um, James Gowan would potentially be a kind of default man uh, in, in the way that um, Perry is critiquing. He is also um, a peripheral figure, too, and in a sense, a kind of underdog, at least in, in the context of his practice and his relationship to figures like Sterling. And I just wondered if you could talk more about uh, what drew you to him as a figure in architecture and what led you to decide to read uh, his work out loud.
2: Well, I, I, I met James, I guess, around about 2004, 2005. And um, I, it was while I was working at building design. And uh, I was aware that he was into his eighties, he was still building and uh, making a series of interesting uh, hospital projects in Northern Italy, um, And he had a very kind of strange practice set because basically it was just him and a fax machine. And he, there was a drawing office in Italy and he would have to do all the drawings at A4 scale because he didn't have a photocopier. And uh, at these axonometrics would get faxed off to an office in Milan. And then five years later, he may or may not end up going to the opening of uh, something that was built. Uh, if so only it, the it very, still
1: worked that way.
2: he was <laughs> very, 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 very he, he was not quite a 21st-century figure, I mean, he, James never used a, um, a credit card. And uh, you know, he, 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 he went to the bank. He, you know, he, he wouldn't get money out of the wall. He, he would, he would, uh, he would go to the bank and get it out. Um, so he, he, and he, he was this quite strange mix of. Um, uh, he was someone who was very loved, particularly by former students, I and mean, he had an extraordinary teaching career. And yet he was also quite a solitary figure, and, and resisted establishing a, 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 a practice of you know of a, of a normal in a normal way. Um, so yeah, I was very intrigued by him, and initially I wanted to write about the the the, the, um, the hospital projects, but that never really happened. Instead, I kind of spent four years sort of sneaking off work and going and interviewing him for what became a book. Um, about his whole whole kind of um, yeah, the whole part of his life um, and um yeah as i say he he, he was very he, he was he he just had an extraordinary humor and intelligence that were, 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 were and he was he was i was writing you know sixteen hundred word reviews of new buildings on a um on a pretty much weekly basis and um he would we'd talk about them you know he'd talk about what i'd written and and um uh he was incredibly kind of supportive and um yeah he encouraged me to be more critical i think than um you know he, he was one of the, uh, the 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 people who who kind of gave me confidence to to actually offer a critique because a lot of architecture writing is is not mm-hmm. of that nature you know it's quite secretarial in the way that it it um, translates the the if you, you offer a description of the architect's intentions. Mm. Uh, so, yeah, he he was definitely someone who I I as I was finding my voice as a writer, he was one of the key people I think. I to, to a certain extent I think probably ventriloquized you know early on in my career and and um, something like yeah. Um, yeah, he had a, I guess I probably also was. He was a figure of particular intrigue to me because people who already were very influential on in me, like Tony Fretton, had uh, been taught by him. And Tony had this very intense relationship with James, um, and I think a lot of his sensibility had had, had been kind of shaped by James. Um, so I was kind of conscious. I was I was uh, encountering this figure who'd been very influential on a line of of architectural thinking, which I I felt I was Mm. implicated.
1: Mm. It's it's, um, exciting to hear that word influence come up because it's so, I think, central to this idea of having a curatorial project and being able to trace and understand a particular lineage through time, through different individuals, and also being able to articulate Uh, an atmosphere in a way as well uh, by observing the work of, in this case, architects. Um, I wanna talk a bit about tradition, I guess, in this light. There's this line from um, Walter Benjamin that's been ringing through my ears for the past week or so. In each generation, the attempt must be made to wrest the tradition from the conformism that is about to overwhelm it, which, It's a delightful puzzle of a statement. (laughs) And I wondered if we could talk about tradition in light of these really significant upheavals and how we think about architecture um, and um, who has a stake in it and what it it ought to mean today. Could we talk about that point, Ellis, first with you?
2: I'm very conscious that the program that the architecture foundation particularly operates has the potential to be both conservative and progressive, and because um, it, it does feel, that, yeah, certainly within in a London context, I think we've become what we what what we, the the, con- the program is quite central to to a discourse, and um, I'd say, and I mean, I'd, I'd draw a distinction between. The work that I do as a writer and the work that I do as a do as a uh, an editor or as a curator you know I, I come really from I come to the AF from a position of having previously edited an architecture magazine I sort of see the architecture foundation as a kind of magazine of live events and what one wants to be as an editor is very inclusive and you know include a kind of broad range of Contrary positions, and um, a good magazine has got a lot of diverse stuff in it, which talks to it talks to each other, but it doesn't necessarily all agree. And that's very much how I see the AF program that it should be very it should accommodate lots of different voices. Um, so it's you know, as a writer, I'm looking for something quite different. I'm looking for a sort of intensity and a you know singularity of, of position. Um, and I'd say that, yeah, having particularly the the program we operate, you know, we put we create with the Barbican Centre, the um, uh, architecture on stage program. I'm I was sort of very conscious with that program, which was I guess had been running for about four years by the beginning of beginning of this year, that it was in danger of or open to open to the criticism that it was a sort of conservative um had a sort of conservative effect on the culture certainly we sort of it, it for people who don't know it it's it's a you know we would at the point of doing at 30 lectures a year in the um in the um, in the barbican center kind of curated in partnership with the barbican and um that was, um, and the, the, the nature of the kind of conversations that one had, and the, 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 the people that one invited, was very um, strongly determined by the logistics and or the market, <laughs> you know, the, the, the that 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 venue can kind have of presented, and um, the program of the people that we'd invited, I guess, I guess, were representative of an architectural culture that. broadly corresponds to the people who might get to be you might find teaching at eth or at harvard or be in the venice biennale or uh be represented in the issue of el croquis and um we found that there was a sort of base you know large audience for for talks of of, 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 by those people people of of, um from, from that kind of relatively small constituency ultimately um but it sort of felt like a powerful thing to be doing in London, which which often hadn't felt very connected to a global architectural culture in that way. It felt quite parochial to me for a long time. Um, but yeah, by the beginning of the year, I thought. But, you know, in recent years, I wanted, it had certainly been subject to subject of sort of criticism that um, that program was, uh, you know, where were the non-Western voices? Did the format of the individual uh, the focus on the the individual giving a lecture was that a a uh, did that represent a an emphasis an undue emphasis on the individual genius you know rather than architecture as the product of a kind of collective endeavor probably there was a there was kind of strong emphasis on um people who make buildings rather than uh, kind of engage with the city in other ways um so there was a yeah one where i was grappling with we i think we we're all grappling with the implications of of to come back to your question you know i, I saw that a lot of what we were doing at the barbican is really trying to embed british architecture within a broader architectural culture a broader arch, uh, architectural discourse but it i, I was speaking certainly beginning to think that you know that there were the problems here about about um whether ultimately we become contributing to a kind of conformism of the kind you're describing. Mm. Rosie, I don't
1: I mean, know if you want to I, add to that.
3: Yeah I mean I guess I, I think that the architecture on Stage um, programme has been enormously successful and um, I guess part of that success is that it does reflect the um, it reflects the ideas and kind of ambitions of the profession that it represents. Um Unfortunately, like the profession is is so um so white and so male that then the reflection back on stage is always white and male or has been. Um, and I think that um I think that like what Ellis is talking about about um this kind of fine line between how much does the architecture Foundation um, curate its output and how much do we um, represent or like be a an example, um, in terms of our output, um, is a really important one that the 100 day Studio has thrown up for us. I think, um, because as curators, we're we are editors, and we could edit down to specifically our own personal tastes or tastes that reflect um, a certain type of architect. Um, but I think. What the 100 day studio has shown that it's it's super important that, um, that the editing is not overly strong and I think that was why the 100 day studio was so successful because we really did put basically everybody on and we just like went full um, yeah we didn't really say no to many people and we just like we just put everything in and it was just a complete jumble of everything and that was what was so incredible about it. Um, mm. I think after that we've, me and Ellis are now trying to decide for next year, like how, how do we take some of that through, but also how do we have a more of a, um, a curational authorship over the programme? <laughs>
1: I have to say that, um, well, first of all, it's it's interesting that this moment of reckoning was already underway before the pandemic hit, and that in some way, the timing was perfect, <laughs> which that sounds like an awful thing to say, but in terms of forcing you as curators to, to come to grips very rapidly with um, this confluence of voices and make a decision very quickly on how to respond, and it sounds like from what you're describing, the response is to to simply um, show everything, show everything that wants to be shown. And for me, the experience was so exciting, but also so overwhelming. Um, <laughs> it felt like uh, I was trying to drink from a fire hose. Like there was just this this um, torrent of information that couldn't possibly uh, be consumed uh, with the attention and time it deserved as well and so the onus becomes uh, that of the audience to make decisions about what is deserving of one's own attention and then ultimately inevitably we have these roundups that take place at this time of year about the greatest hits and uh, what was of note and, and uh, I just noticed this morning that the AF sent out one as well of of recommendations of hundred-day studio talks and lectures that are worth a second listen or a first one if people hadn't come across them before. So, could you both talk about now this process of revisiting this significant volume of information and then and doing your own pruning and what kind of decisions are being made on that front? I know you asked outside critics to make recommendations, um, but um, I'd be curious to know what your own um roundups are of the best of the best of the 100 day studio no pressure
3: should i go first go um yeah so i i guess um as i said before previously when we were talking um ellis and i genuinely did watch every single one and we're probably the only two people who have done that
1: um (laughs) i just i just have to say um because i i was fortunate to be able to contribute to the studio and as a result you sent out thank you notes to everyone and offered them a little poster as a kind of show of gratitude but really when i saw that i felt so moved to and compelled to thank you both um because really um the majority of the effort was on your part and it was to to imagine to actually understand what it means to sit through almost 300 presentations that's probably upwards of 400 hours of architecture (laughs) in all its various facets and um, permutations Um, there's something almost disturbing about that to me that it's this this feat of extreme endurance um, and it has to be celebrated and commended and um i just yeah i mean the, we're not ending the conversation now but um it's just worth pointing that out that um this is a, a real feat i think of attention on your part so anyways you saw all I, these lectures
2: i think it's worth pointing out to matthew one of the things that made the 100 day studio possible was everyone did it for free and you know people were extraordinarily generous and we you know Basically, we, we, the beginning of this process was, um, I think we had the lockdown in early March and neither Rosie or I, I think, had used Zoom before. (laughs) And um, we sort of, were having to work remotely from each other and um, so we had a Zoom call and then it became sort of apparent, you know, we were thinking, well, why don't we, we, there's no other way to, to do, do events other than digitally at the moment. So maybe this is our medium for the foreseeable future. And so we sort of identified this, I think I'd come up with the term 100 day university, and then Rosie thought 100 day studio would be better. But there was this, and there was a kind of period when we were gonna do a 100 days.
3: Solid. <laughs> because,
2: you know, we were just, you know, we're gonna, not take the weekends and the bank holidays off and we were just gonna go for it. Uh, but also we thought, you know, we, we weren't really expecting there to be, you know, just three or three things or two or three things a day. You know, we were just we thought we'd send out this email to people we knew and ask them if they wanted to do something and they would they would kind of drop in and but it kind of did develop this extraordinary momentum. And Alicia Pavaro needs mentioning because she was the one mm-hmm. who um immediately came forward and said um, what you know she'd like to curate this bedtime story slot in the um the instagram um reading each night so that already was you know a hundred things something happening every day but the the intensity of it and you know the 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 volume was a surprise to us i think and it really was very um you know it, yeah, it was it was a real endurance test for us, and we were quite in a bad shape by <laughs> the end of August. But um, but it was um, but it, I, I I was really uh, yeah I think we were both very very kind of moved by the generosity of people who came forward, and um, one of the reasons we, we we're not doing the hundred days now is because we want to pay people. You know, I, I don't think it's gonna be, I don't think it would be sort of ethical for us to to carry on. Doing a program where people didn't get paid, but in that particular moment, it felt possible, and I think everybody recognised that it was, you know, a contribution to a, um, you know, there were no ticket prices, and and it was a sort of contribution to a, um, to a sense of community and, 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 a, and an ongoing culture at a moment when everybody was stuck indoors and um, yeah, feeling kind of lonely. Um, mm-hmm.
1: But, so I, I feel like I've gotten a bit ahead of myself here because i I do still want the roundup <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: yeah, I mean, I think um it was it was a strange experience, um yes, being in all of these and seeing the audience numbers go up and down, and during the, those kind of summer months, like the July and august, um the figures really dipped or. Oh um and um everyone was just so digitally fatigued um so it, some of my f- kind of some of the ones which i feel are like the underdogs the ones which didn't get to didn't get the amount of views or um uh people that should have been there um one of them is um, emmanuel pratt um who i'm so happy that um was chosen by Hani salah Um, from Migrants Bureau in the Roundup um, and he kind of described it as one of the most refreshing events of um, 2020. Um, So yeah Emmanuel is um, director of the Sweetwater Foundation in Chicago um, and um, Hani was kind of talking about how he uses um, uh, like uh, he uses spatial um, programming as a way of um talking or like m- mediating um racial tensions and he's um kind of he was like totally inspiring and like so many more people like hundreds of thousands of people should watch it. Um yeah and I I guess um and that was down to Ellis hard bargaining him to get him to to um speak in the program. Um and then yeah, my, my other highlight is not a, um, it's not a underrepresented one. It's um, Sound Advice, um, which um, has obviously now taken on a life of its own. But I think um, Sound Advice run by um, Joseph Henry and Pooja Agaral um, really like encapsulated a moment and really changed the, the tone um, when speaking about race in architecture. And rather than being um, uh, like in any way, timid or um, quiet, they were unapologetic and um, really inspired um, a lot of people to have the confidence to have these conversations in their workplaces, I think. Um, And yeah, so there's sound advice. They did, they did one talk back in April, which their which was their first, um live event and then a second one in the summer which I don't think anyone came to um because it was just as um lockdown had been um relaxed um yeah those are my kind of three recommendations Um, I mean it should be said it's true that
2: the I think one of the things that happened in the course of the hundred days was that people started watching the recordings rather than coming to the live events. Mm. So um, yeah, we were having sort of 500 people come to you know talks in the first week, and then and then that that was not the case later. But but it, it, it's sort of been gratifying seeing that yeah the, the YouTube recordings have a have a an have afterlife. Um, I'd say I, 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 it would be invidious to choose favourites, but uh, but I, I will. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'll I, I tell you the, the ones that have sort of stuck with me as things I've been thinking about in terms of the formats were provocative and they kind of offer, they've offered suggestions of things we might do now. Um, I mean, one was uh, Tony Fretton gave a series of lectures about other architects' work. Um, and, you know, as he said to me, well. There isn't an institution that would ask me to write to give a series of lectures. you know that he gets asked all the time to go and give a talk about his work. but that that the idea that so that a practitioner might have the other platform to to give a give a um, a, a series of talks, I think is is something that suddenly yeah, yeah, this this online broadcasting opens up. Um, so we've asked Peter Merkley's agreed to give three talks in the spring for us. so i'm I'm keen to explore ways in which which we can break beyond the break the sort of usual hour and a half format of a conventional lecture and have conversations which which sort of run on one of the things i was particularly we got to the towards the end of tony's talks he was talking about like louis Kahn and class action and leverance um and then um i'd remembered that he'd given a lecture. That I'd seen, which completely um, was one of my favorite lectures I've ever seen back in 1995 um, when I was a student, which was a lecture about um, uh, Caesar and Tavora and Lee Friedlander, the photographer, uh, which was a kind of a, a surprising kind of conjunction. Um, and um, and also talking, of course, about his own work. So this was just after the Listen Gallery had, had been completed, and um, and so we asked him to basically reconstruct this lecture, which had originally been given with slides. So he had to find, you know, images. He was giving a PowerPoint, so it, it had to be completely um, kind of reconstructed. But it, it very much tallied with my memory of of of, of the, the version I'd seen sort of 25 years ago. And I was just very um pleased to have, have, have that as a as a, have that something archived and publicly accessible and it's on the record because there are obviously so many kind of talks people give that, that, that evaporate um, the I, I also was very Tony was very good at suggesting people that we might invite to be in the program who we didn't know previously, and one of them was uh, Nicholas Campadonico uh who is um a fantastic argentinian architect um and i kind of chose him because he he was one of the i think one of only a few uh speakers that weren't confident speaking in english and um so he provided us with a he pre-recorded a talk in spanish and then um provided us with a spanish transcript which I think with the aid of Google Translate, Rosie concocted it into something that was subtitleable in English, and it was very effective. And it 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 that got me has certainly got me thinking about the the fact that all our live program actually is focused on people who speak English, and there is this sort of possibility with the online broadcasting of um, doing it. You know, season of Japanese speakers either talking in their native language or people from Latin America or Africa, wherever it may be. Um, I mean, so the Merkley talks that, um, that are going to happen next um, in the spring, uh, he's going to speak in German. Um, you know, I have heard him speak in English, and he gives very charismatic you know, talks in English, but um, I think it's also constraining for him in terms of what he can express. Um, so I'm excited by that possibility that we, we, we're going to be able to involve people in the in the in the program who, who we might not have previously. Um, and then the the last one I pick out is is um, uh, the there's a uh, Shahed Selim, um We gave a number of presentations. Um, he wanted to do a session with Muff about the park that um, Muff had designed about 10 years ago, opposite the Whitechapel Art Gallery.
1: This is the Alta Valley Park in Whitechapel. Yeah,
2: um, and um, so yes, uh, Liza was down on on the site with a iPhone and Catherine, a partner was kind of, I think kind of, on the Isle of Wight and uh, some of the clients were also on the Zoom call and, um, that was, and Shahid was a rather brilliant interviewer um, asking them about the the, the the genesis of this project. And um, I, yeah, I think the, 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 this format of, um, uh, uh, this format has been one that's sort of been suggestive for us. Um, mm-hmm. Where it's so the next year, it's the Architects Foundation's 30th anniversary. And we're putting together at the moment a program where we're inviting somewhere between 50 and 100 um, individuals to choose a project in a very broad term, not necessarily a building, but a a project of some sort from the past 30 years that they want to to interrogate over the course of a sort of online broadcast, potentially with a sort of um, with an interview with the original architect or instigator of project um, so we're sort of trying to build up a almost an alternative architectural history of the past 30 years with people generally of a uh, yeah kind of probably between 35 and 50 kind of um uh, uh, asking uh, choosing the projects which um uh, often, often interviewing people kind of a, a, of an older generation mm-hmm. um so I that's think... yeah that's coming forward coming coming about at the moment
3: I think also what was so great about that um, the conversation with Muff and um, Shahed um, was that you had kind of all of these different um, stakeholders within the project, like the community group, uh, the client side, the council, um, kind of all there. And then, and then um, one of the members of the community group was saying that the park hasn't been very well used by um, young women and children um, in the past 10 years and kind of that criticism was um, Liza was in the park and she was kind of very, <laughs> very quickly um, filming children and young women in the park and saying, no, look, here they are. Like, <laughs> and like, don't, t- don't talk about that five pounds. I just slipped you. Um, <laughs> um, but it was, and she was also talking about the kind of maintenance and the upkeep of the park and like um, calling on Tim from, Tim Rettler, I can't remember his name. Um, from the council saying, Look, we need some more money, we need it so we can keep up this, keep up the maintenance. Um, so it's like a really, really dynamic conversation. And I think um, one of the things going forward would be that we should have a lot more um, on site footage rather than sharing everything through um, presentation screen sharing, um, so that there's a real like um, relationship. Um, a much more dynamic relationship between those things.
1: Mm -hmm. There's this added level of realism now in architectural discourse that I think mobile presentation has brought about. The fact that everyone is letting their guards down and formality in a way has become quite off-putting because we all know, um, we're all aware of the mess behind us in our Zoom calls. We're all all aware of... uh, our domestic struggles and, um, our burdens with work and life. And that's all become a part in a way of, um, of the presentation. Mm-hmm. And yeah, so to see Liza on site in that talk, um, and kind of unearthing the mess, I guess, of the negotiations and deliberations around how the project was actualized, but also mm-hmm. then being in the thick of the site itself and showing, um, in real time, how it's being used. To me as well, it feels like the way forward for um, um, future you know, discussions about projects, mm-hmm. and I agree. It was so exciting to see.
3: I also wanted to point out another lecture, um, that wasn't from the Hundred Day Studio, um, but it's the Caruso Sinjin um, lecture where um Ellis and Nana Biyama afusu um, interviewed them, um, or were in conversation with them, um, and they showed two clips, um, one from the start of their career and one at the, from the end. Um, and the the clip um, filmed at the Swiss Arena, was it the Swiss Arena in Zurich, um, which is currently on site um, under construction, um, was a really kind of like nice behind the scenes version of um, the projects that you don't usually get to see when you, you only see them in their finished form. Um, and also seeing Adam Caruso kind of joking around with the with the contractors and and it was just a really nice um really interesting take on it and i think it's something that we definitely want to take through to um next year also the pairing of um a more established architect with maybe a younger emerging architect as the person to interview them Um, so it's something that we can kind of bring through to the architecture on stage program to um hopefully kind of broaden it up and diversify who we're to it, making opportunities for. Hmm. The
2: good... One was, was definitely that was quite directly inspired by that that Shahed and Muff event. Hmm. Um, obviously, their, their their production values were somewhat higher than than, than Um <laughs> But, but I, one of the things that was nice, I thought about the yeah the, the Caruso Engine One was you you did meet you saw the work is the product of a, a collective endeavour that you saw other people in the office other than Adam and Peter, you know, where a, a conventional lecture format where it would always be the, the directors were sort of privileged to the exclusion of all, or everyone else. And um, which, uh, of course their voices need to be kind of central, but um, I think, I think the, 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 suddenly the dynamic of, of how the office presented itself has kind of shifted. Um, Yeah, by virtue of kind of using
1: these films. Mm. Um, I'm really looking forward to what happens when we all are back in person with each other again, and how the conditions that the pandemic has brought about and the attitudes that it's shaped around how we engage with architecture and encounter each other um, through architecture. will change and uh, I just want to say thank you again to both of you not only for your time now but for the work you've been doing um, to I guess maintain the culture (laughs) it's really important work and um, and um, yeah I think there's there's so much deep appreciation and gratitude for it so um,
3: thank you again thank you Mm
1: you've been listening to scaffold i'm matthew blunderfield and i produce the show the theme music is composed and performed by andrew rayworth of the band stanley park with additional music this week by duke ellington subscribe to scaffold on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and follow the show on twitter and instagram at scaffold underscore podcast Thank you to Ellis Woodman and Rosie Gibbs-Stevenson, to the Architecture Foundation for supporting the show, and a special thanks as well to the supporters on Patreon. Thanks as always to Skandalin, and thanks to you for listening. I'll see you again next time.
2: Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row?